Hello, and thank you for tuning into Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, your host, and the clinical microbiologist and the chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. For today's episode, we welcome Kayla Erickson from our product management team at Mayo Clinic Laboratories for a test and focus interview. So thank you for that introduction, Dr. Pritt. Today we will be discussing our AHUS testing with Dr. Shariterin. Before we get started, I'm really interested. Could you give me a little bit of background on yourself and uh, just where you work at Mayo Clinic? Thank you for having me today. I'm a hematologist practicing here at Mayo Rochester. Um, my primary clinical focus in hematology is non-malignant or benign hematology. I also have a joint appointment in the Special Coagulation Laboratory, where I spend time providing interpretations for coagulation laboratory profiles. So given kind of my clinical and kind of lab-based practices, I have a real interest in providing guidance on how to optimize laboratory testing to better um, aid in clinical diagnosis and follow-up for patients. I have a specific clinical and research focus in thrombotic microangiopathies, and that's what we'll be talking about today. I think it's so interesting that you are practicing in the clinic and in the laboratory. It gives you a very unique perspective on some of these disease states and the tests that go with them. So before we start talking about the tests, can you just tell me a little bit about TMA and, and that disease state itself? Thrombotic microangiopathies are TMAs. They're a clinical pathologic syndrome characterized by thrombocytopenia, non-immune microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, and end organ damage. Thrombotic microangiopathies represent a heterogeneous group of disorders. So um, many people are familiar with the disorder known as thrombotic thrombocytic purpura or TTP, but then there's many other diagnoses that follow within TMAs. There's also hemolytic uremic syndrome, which can be caused by shigatoxin. There's also thrombotic microangiopathies that occur secondary to other disease processes. So for example, certain patients with malignancies or um, rheumatologic diagnoses are more prone to getting thrombotic microangiopathies. In addition, certain medications can trigger a thrombotic microangiopathy. And in addition to all of those diagnoses, there is a thrombotic microangiopathy that's due to the dysregulation of the alternative pathway of complement. And that type of thrombotic microangiopathy is termed atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome. The term that's being more commonly used now is complement-mediated TMA, but for purposes of this discussion, I'll use the terminology atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome. And the diagnostic panel that we're going to talk about today was designed to help with the diagnosis of atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome. So you've given us a really interesting scope. I had no idea that there were so many different ways and so many different diagnoses for this particular disease state. So as we talk very specifically about this testing. So can you give me a brief overview of the assays we're using here at Mayo Clinic to diagnose this disease state? Specifically for thrombotic microangiopathies in general, for TTP or thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, we have our ADAM-TS13 testing, which is diagnostic for TTP. For diagnoses such as hemolytic uremic syndrome, we have the ability to test a patient's stool specimen for shigatoxin. But for atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome, what we have available in our lab is we have um, the availability of complement serologic tests and complement genetic tests. 
And so the complement serologic test that we offer here is a very comprehensive profile. Rather than just looking at one or two analytes, we look at actually nine analytes. So to better understand that, let me just very briefly discuss just the complement system. So the complement system consists of three different pathways, classical, alternative, and lectone mannose binding pathways. Though the recognition molecules which trigger activation of each pathway differ, all converge to a C3-mediated amplification loop by pathway-specific C3 convertases. The alternative pathway is unique in that it is constitutively, constitutively active at low levels in a surveillance role. Complement activation is controlled by a set of membrane-bound and fluid phase regulators to prevent overactivation. Any imbalance between the acting and regulatory mechanisms caused by genetic variants or acquired autoantibodies to the complement components may trigger disease processes. So our panel contains nine different analytes that comprehensively looks at the whole complement cascade. It covers the classical alternative pathway function, complement proteins, and activation markers. So this testing is really comprehensive in that it covers, like you said, classic and alternative, correct? And that it's kind of making sure that anything that's outside of the norm we're picking up in that, that one comprehensive test. So you're not having to kind of pick through bits and pieces with a bunch of single individual tests. Am I correct in, under, in kind of how you brought that up? The value for the atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome is that a lot of things can affect complements. So patients who have sepsis, have severe infections, that can definitely affect um, impact complement. But the pattern of complement abnormalities we see with those type of disorders are very different than the pattern of abnormalities we would see with someone having specific alternative pathway dysregulation. So by getting the full comprehensive panel, you're excluding other possibilities of why complement could be abnormal and making sure what you're dealing with is a specific alternative pathway problem. So quick question for you. When you're doing that comprehensive test, you're telling me you're ruling in what you're supposed to be looking at, but also ruling out what you're potentially missing if you're not doing the whole test. Are there differences in treatment because of those different findings? And if you were to do like a, an individual test or a smaller panel, would you potentially miss those? Like, how does this affect how you treat a patient then when you have all of this information in front of you? Mm -hmm. To answer that question, I'm going to go about how we think about diagnosing atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome. So though um, we have like gold standard tests for TTP, and I, met, how I mentioned that's ADAMTS13, and for HUS, we get that shigatoxin, there has never been a gold standard test for atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome, and there still is not a gold standard test. What we consider atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome is we consider it a diagnosis of exclusion. And so clinically, what I'm looking at is I'm looking at how is the patient present do they have any other secondary causes of having a TMA? With the way they're presenting, we look at certain parameters. So for example, in TTP, a patient's renal function is not as affected as in someone with hemolytic uremic syndrome or atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome. So if I see a patient that has a really high creatinine and also has a TMA, I'm not necessarily thinking as much about TTP. I'm thinking more about hemolytic uremic syndrome or atypical hemolytic 
hyperkalemic syndrome. So I take all of that kind of into, into my diagnostic you know, algorithm. And then I say, okay, so this is my differential diagnosis. In that differential diagnosis is atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome. I know the pathophysiology of that is dysregulation of the alternative pathway of complement. So why don't we take a look at the, those complement um, analytes and see if we have a pattern that is consistent with alternative pathway dysregulation. So I'm using the laboratory results as supporting evidence of a clinical diagnosis that I made after excluding other diagnoses. Does that make sense? No, that absolutely makes sense. And it seems like the process that you're talking about is actually very common in the hematology world. There's no one test. There's no positive or negative. It's putting together that puzzle of the patient's entire clinical picture to say, yes, this is exactly the disease that you have. And here's how we're going to move forward. And so, but it does sound like that this complement testing is kind of a linchpin in making that final decision for you. Am I correct? As this is, this is what it is. And this is how we're going to proceed so as you get those results back, how does that affect how you treat a patient? What are the treatments for them as, as you go through this once you've made that decision? Mm -hmm. So it can help support the decision to diagnose a person with atypical hemolytic cremant syndrome, which is very important to do because there are approved complement therapies for this disorder. So the first approved medication for this disorder is a medication called ecoluzumab or Solaris. And so it's a C5 inhibitor. More in the last year or two, another medication Ravaluzumab or Ultimaris, which is a longer acting form of the C5 inhibitor, um, was also approved. So there, there are definitive diagnostic treatment options for these patients. And so it's very imperative that we um, get the right diagnosis and get them started on these treatments. Wow, that's so interesting. And so all of these therapies have come out just in the last couple of years. So there's a lot of movement in this space that is really probably driving the need for a lot understanding this complement um, testing and seeing that full clinical picture because you have to now you now have different therapies to choose from. Correct. Correct. This is so cool. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed learning about it. I'll be honest, I didn't know a ton about um, TMA or our atypic hemolytic uremic syndrome testing. And so it's been really good for you to learn about it. And I hope that our listeners have, have uh, enjoyed learning about it as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday.